to strengthen American economic resiliency and equitably expand economic opportunity by launching a national competition promoting state and local strategic planning, encouraging innovation by the public and private sectors, and by substantially investing federal resources in research and development. So goes the introduction to Bill S-4624, the Innovation Centers Acceleration Act, introduced in September 2020 by Senators Chris Coons and Dick Durbin, both members of the Senate Appropriations Committee and Senate Competitiveness Caucus, along with Representatives Joe Morrell and Terry Sewell. On today's episode of The Fiona Show, R&D Tax Credit, we'll dig into the bill and how it'll impact and expand the R&D tax credit in exciting ways. And to help us do it, I'd like to welcome our guest, Robert Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. This discussion will be led by Cross-Border Solutions Director of R&D Tax Incentives, Rahim Walji, who I'll hand things off to right now. Rahim, you have the floor. Thanks, Matt. Rob, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. For the benefit of our audience, could you please give us a little bit of background on yourself? Well, thank you, Rahim. It's my pleasure to be here. So I'm the founder and president of a think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, or ITIF. And we're ranked as the number one science and tech policy think tank in the world by University of Pennsylvania. We've been around about 15 years. And what we try to do is help policymakers in the U.S., but really all around the world, better understand innovation policy, why it's important, and then offer up specific proposals and ideas like the one we're talking about today. Thank you very much. And prior to founding the ITIF, what were you involved in? Well, after I got my PhD a long time ago at Chapel Hill, I started my career at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. I was there for a while, and then I moved over to the former Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, which is OTA. It was an advisory body to help Congress think through technology questions. I then left D.C. for a while and ran an economic development program for a governor and then leading ITIF. Wow, that's fantastic and a great career before you got into founding this organization. Yeah, and I got to tell you, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Ability to you know try to shape policy and help shape it, especially to drive more innovation, which is critical now. Absolutely agree with you. And I'm excited to talk with you about how you and the ITIF overall are, are really working to do this. So let's kind of jump in. Can you tell us what the Innovation Center's Acceleration Act aims to do And then what motivated the ITIF to endorse it? So kind of a two-part question there. A few years ago, I came up with an idea. So I'm on the board of a group called the State Science and Technology Institute, SSTI. And it's a group of states and local governments, and they try to, you know, support technology-based economic development. So I've been following this for, you know, almost my entire career. And one of the things that's very clear to me is, well, a lot of places have very good policies. There's so much competition to create an innovation hub, and there's so you know, not all that much supply, if you will, that frankly, very few places ever go from, you know, trying to to actually making it. I mean, you can sort of count on a couple of fingers, really, you know, San Diego, perhaps, Austin, Research Triangle Park, maybe Seattle, with the idea that Silicon Valley and Boston were already established hubs. But most places, particularly in the heartland and the south, even places that have reasonably okay strengths, where they've got a good university, they've got some tech industry jobs, they struggle with how to get to that next level of, if you will, self-sustainability. And on top of that, you have this problem where 
over 100% of the tech jobs that were growing in the U.S. in the last, I don't know, 15 years or so were only in five places, places we would expect, Seattle, Boston, Silicon Valley, and the like. So there's a real need, both economically and politically, frankly, to get more innovation activity in more parts of the country. If that's the goal, then you got really two choices. You can take the peanut butter approach. Okay, let's give everybody a little bit of something. And that, frankly, just won't work. I mean, we should acknowledge that as much as it's sort of the politically easy thing to do and sort of everybody thinks, oh, isn't that fair? It just won't work. What you need to do is to get a few places, maybe 10 that are real strengths, give them real support, get them over the hump, and maybe five or eight or something end up being really self-sustaining technology hubs that are like Seattle or Silicon Valley that essentially become black holes in the, in the good sense of the word. They suck in talent. They suck in companies from all over around the world. So anyway, we, along with Brookings Institution, came up with a report proposing that. And Senator Coons in particular, a Democrat from Delaware, as you, as you noted, he took the lead on putting that idea into legislative language. And that's really the Innovation Center Acceleration Act. That's fantastic. And so, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the study that, that the ITF and, and Brookings Institute performed and, and a little bit about the act itself. What are some of the key areas that caused you and the ITIF to endorse this? So I know, you know, the idea generated a, a while back, but in terms of the endorsement, what about the act specifically, you know, was exciting for you? You know, it turns out when you go out and talk to a lot of startup companies that are, you know, maybe a couple of years old or what, or if you talk to venture capitalists, a lot of them say the same story. They talk about having a second office strategy. So yeah, their first office is where they, where they grew up and where they were born. So that might be Silicon Valley or Boston. But when they get a little bit bigger and they start to, well, we need this, we need that, they usually don't do it right there because the costs are so outrageously high. I mean, I live in Bethesda, Maryland, and my son got a computer science degree and he wanted to be in Silicon Valley. So he went out there, got a really great company for him, a startup-y kind of company, about 100, 150 now workers. But he's paying more for rent for a little teeny studio apartment than I pay in Bethesda, Maryland for my mortgage for my single family home. So the costs are so great in those places. They have to pay people so much that a lot of companies say, look, we need a second office strategy, but we need it to be in a tech hub. We need it to be where there are other tech companies and tech workers and universities. So where do they go? They go to places like Shanghai or Tel Aviv or Bangalore. But what they don't do is go to places like Indianapolis or Columbus. And it turns out, believe it or not, it's as cheap to do business in a place like Indianapolis or Detroit as it is to do it in Shanghai. So the idea would be, could we get those companies to say, wait a minute, let's pick an American location and put those jobs there. The second reason for doing it is just, you know, there was so much, I think, dissatisfaction when President Trump was elected that that reflected in really anger and dissatisfaction about how whole swaths of the country had been left behind. You know, if you're on the coast, you, you know, on average, you're doing pretty well. But if you're in the heartland, it's been a bigger struggle. So the idea is, couldn't we get more of the tech economy in places where people already are and create opportunity as well as national innovation? Absolutely. Great point. So let's dive in a little deeper in terms of the R&D that's being incentivized with this act. How would it ultimately affect 
the R&D tax credit that's currently in place? Well, I think a couple of things to put in perspective is there, there's a lot of focus now in the Congress on, and bipartisan and bicameral, on improving the research and development tax credit or the research and experimentation tax credit, as it's formally known. ITF came out with a report last fall in September by two of the leading R&D tax credit experts in the world, where they ranked about 34 countries around the world, the bigger OECD countries, as well as the, the BRICS, the four countries, the big countries. And we rank the R&D credit in terms of you know, who's giving the most. If you do a dollar of R&D in the, in the U.S. versus a dollar of R&D in another country, how much do you get? And the U.S. ranked 24th. It was pretty pitiful. And the reason we ranked 24th is because all these other countries have just really, really worked at expanding their tax credits or super deductions or various forms, but essentially tax incentives for R&D. So there's a lot of effort focused in the Hill to, to, to do that, to fix that. One of the most common, there are a couple of bills in each chamber that are trying to double the credit from what's called the alternative simplified credit now is 14, putting it to 28, the regular credit 20, moving that to 40. There's a second issue, which is probably even more important, and that's what Congress did in the Tax Act of 2018 was they lowered the corporate rate, but one of the pay-fors was to take away expensing of R&D expenditures and only allow the credit. Before that, you had ex- you could expense them and take the credit. And now, starting next year, you have to deduct them. If that provision goes into place, which it will unless Congress acts, we will drop from 24th to 32nd in generosity. So it's a huge deal. So, anyway, so that's the context. In particular, the Innovation Center Acceleration Act What it does is it it has a number of carrots, if you will, for companies to locate in these places. And these places would essentially be bigger metropolitan areas that compete to win one of these competition awards. So there'd be, you know, tough competition and maybe 10 or so would get, if you will, anointed as saying you win. One of the things that you win is if you're a company there, either in that new metropolitan area that wins as a hub, or if you want to locate there, or if you want to start up there, you would get a special research and development tax credit. So it would raise the credit by about 50%, and it would also provide better, stronger payments for basic research. So right now, if you fund a university, you get a less generous credit than if you funded your own research, which is you know, crazy. It would basically do a few other things to, to, to make the credit a little bit easier, including allowing startups to more easily take the credit, to take a refundable credit. Right now, one of the things that Senator Coons did a number of years ago, uh, we'd worked with his office on, was to create a new credit that would be refundable for pre-revenue startups. Companies that start up, they do a lot of R&D, but they can't take the credit because they're not making any money. Exactly. And they're not paying any taxes. Exactly. They're not paying any taxes. Now, you can carry forward, I believe, for seven years, but it doesn't really do you any good when you really need it. So Senator Coons and Republican co-sponsors put in a credit that you can take the credit against your unemployment insurance taxes. This would expand that. There's also another bill, bipartisan bill, that would make that even better. You could take it against the Social Security taxes, FICA. The cap would be larger. So there's a real interesting effort in Congress to make it essentially a better credit for startups. So they'd actually be getting money back from the government to help them move their products and their R&D into commercialization and sales. Absolutely. And, you know, given the current environment, there's this push, as you mentioned, or there's a lot of consistent efforts across different areas and different committees 
to improve the R&D tax credit itself. Why did Senator Coons and Senator Durbin and others feel that this bill is so urgent right now in terms of changing how R&D and innovation is incentivized? The simple answer is China. I mean, that really is the motivating factor for a lot of things now. If you go back and and look at why did the U.S. even create an R&D credit? We, we were the first country in the world to have a research and development tax incentive. Essentially went into effect in 83, I believe. And what was going on then? What was going on then was the beginning of the Japan challenge and to some extent sort of the German competitiveness challenge. And there was a big concern starting in the late 70s all the way through the 80s that America was losing its edge, particularly in advanced industries. And so we're like, well, we got to do something about it. And there was a swarm of legislation that people forget or never knew about. Things like, for example, changing the ERISA rules on letting pension funds invest in venture capital pools, creating the R&D tax credit, establishing the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which was renamed and remissioned, creating the SBIR program, the Small Business Innovation Research Program. So just an enormous array of really fantastic policy changes and programs. And then as the 90s went on and the 2000s, there was, we became, I think, complacent. Oh, yeah, we're, we're great. Look, we got Silicon Valley. We got some of the leading technology companies in the world. And people kind of went to sleep and they just kind of ignored what our competitors were doing. And in the last, you know, four or five years, really, that is one of the things that President Trump helped with was to raise the awareness of China as a, as a serious competitive threat, particularly in advanced technology with their Made in China 2025. So a lot of it's that. It's like, boy, oh boy, we got to do something now. That's why, for example, the Endless Frontier Act, Senator Young, a Republican from Indiana, and actually Senator Schumer from New York, the Democratic Senate leader. And that's a bill that put, you know, tens of hundred billion dollars into a new fund at the National Science Foundation for technology. There's the CHIPS Act for funding the semiconductor industry. So a lot of that all now in the air in Washington and people recognize, including Senator Coons and Senator Durbin, that a better R&D credit has to be one of those critical arrows in the quiver. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai slash rd. That's xbs.ai slash rd. With the COVID pandemic and you know, a, a bit of a, a recession happening right now, slowdown in, in, you know, economic output because you've got people who can't work or 
certain businesses that can't operate the way that they used to with the efficiency and, and productivity that they used to. I'm sure a lot of that is, is influencing this push to also incentivize the innovation piece coming out of this to, to really, you know, kickstart the growth. Absolutely. In reality, there's, yeah, there's, there's three things. There's the, the China threat that's sort of looming over us. There's the, boy, we've had this, you know, enormous crisis challenge to the economy, obviously to public health, but to the economy in the last 15 months. And we got to make sure that we, you know, escape launch velocity coming out of it. And so innovation will probably be one of those core engines in the jet, if you will, to get us going. So yes, absolutely. And then the third is really this notion that there's a deep, I don't know what you want to call it, malaise, unhappiness in the U.S. body politic. It reminds me of the the 1970s, uh, the famous movie Network, where the guy yells out the window, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling that there's big swaths of the country that are mad as hell. And, And partly because there's this emerging economy if you're in the knowledge class or you're in the technology class, in other words, like my son, who's a computer scientist, you'll do fine. If you're, you know, a, a lawyer or a designer, you know, you'll do fine. You can be in New York, you can be in Washington, you can be in LA, but there's lots of people in the middle of the country where the economy is nowhere near as strong or as vibrant. And that's another major motivation, or could we get a little bit more balance, if you will? Sure. And that balance, we talk about equality, right? Or equity sometimes. And to your point earlier in the conversation, you mentioned how that sometimes people perceive that as everybody gets the same amount or it should be shared equally amongst who's there, you know, including these large innovation hubs that already exist in terms of, you know, the West Coast and, and some of the East Coast. But sometimes you really have to look at where the need is, right? And how to balance that out. Because to your point, there's a lot of these jobs that are at risk with automation and things like that. And to your point, the computer science degrees, the designers, they're the ones that are going to be working on those types of equipment and automation. Whereas the jobs that it will replace, you know, those folks need to have some opportunity to get upskilled and create new opportunities for them as well. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting political challenge because the theory behind this is very, won't go into a lot of detail, but in regional economics, which is a discipline of economics, there's a theory called growth poles. And the idea is you have to get a certain critical mass to be able to really become self-sustaining. Now, if you look at for example, Amazon HQ2 decision, they wanted to create you know, two satellite headquarters. So they looked all around the country. And where did they pick? They picked New York, but then they were kind of forced out. And then they picked Washington, D.C. Neither of those, I mean, I'm, Amazon can make the choice they need to make, and it was probably the right choice for them, but it wasn't the right choice for the country. The last thing in the world Washington, D.C. needs is more, more jobs. I mean, I live here. I see the traffic congestion and the housing crisis. You know, if you took those jobs and you put them in a Columbus or Birmingham, Alabama or St. Louis, oh man, those jobs would be transformative. So part of the challenge politically is is you you have some members who are from, not going to say Silicon Valley, but some members who are from tech hubs, let's say, and they're like, why would I vote for this thing that would give money to other places besides where I'm from? Mm -hmm. And then you have other members who say, well, I'm from a place where there's just no way we would ever get the money. I mean, uh, rural Illinois, let's say, I'm sorry, there's not going to be a tech hub in rural Illinois. There might be one in Chicago or St. Mm -hmm. Louis. And they'd be like, well, what am I getting for this? And 
I have a simple answer for them is, well, number one, if you're in Silicon Valley, what you're getting is you're getting your economy to fundamentally be more sustainable because at some point the costs, I would actually argue the costs now are a barrier. They exactly. Are, they are deterring yep. the ability for startups. So, you know, can you take some of the little siphon, some of the head off? And then for the places like, I don't know, I'm just saying rural Illinois, they'd be a lot better off if Chicago and St. Louis and Indianapolis were really strong innovation hubs because there's suppliers that would sell to them that might be 100 or 200 miles away. But it's an interesting political challenge whether Congress will be able to do something this targeted. True. And then the diversity piece, right? You think about all the cost that's being spent on quality of life and living in, in terms of these hub areas where, where they're skyrocketing. Those similar investments in different areas and that money could be spent in so many different ways, right? So good Yeah. Point. And I think what's interesting, you know, is in COVID, one of the things that became clearer is a lot of companies, not just tech companies, but companies with a lot of office jobs, they're like, we don't need to be here, or we certainly don't need all our workers to be here. You saw that in the last you know, four or five months where Oracle, HP, a couple of other companies decided they were going to move a lot of their jobs to Texas. What was that all about? Well, you know, maybe part of it's they don't like California state government policies, but a lot of it was they think they can get a reasonably good tech hub and good workers and good suppliers and all of that in a much cheaper place. And so you know, why doesn't the government sort of make that a little bit more sustainable and, and, and a little bit more targeted? And I said, I, I think it's one of those strange things where oftentimes in economic policy, you have to make a choice between equity or growth. And sometimes the right choice is equity and sometimes the right choice is growth. But this is one of those things, I believe, where if you do this, you get both equity and growth or competitiveness and opportunity. That's a great point. Before we dive into a little bit more about the benefits of the, the act itself and, and some of the qualification requirements, you know, for this competitive environment to, to receive, you know, a status about it. In terms of, you know, you've mentioned other countries, we've talked about, you know, a little bit at a high level of different incentives that they offer. Can you tell us a little bit more about maybe one or, or two other country incentives and, and why they're considered more generous in, than the U.S.? And then did anything about those other countries inform the makeup of the Innovation Centers Acceleration Act? Are there innovation centers in other countries and how they do it? Can you just speak on that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things I think about what's been gone on in the last 20 or 30 years or so is, you know, there's an old famous commercial back, I guess, from the 80s or whatever. And it's, we're Avis, we're number two, we try harder. And it was kind of a, an attack on Hertz, who had number one market shares. So the idea is we're the upstart. We're going to work really hard for your business. That's really where a lot of countries have been over the last 20 years. They look at the U.S. They say the U.S. is strong. Boy, we better try harder. And so one of the things that they do is they you know, dramatically ramped up the amount of money they put into their research universities. I mean, just dramatically ramped up. We, we, we just came out with a report on that, and we were third last over the last 10 years or so in increasing uh, university R&D. We were negative. We declined as a share of GDP. They were putting in place better R&D tax credits. They have better incentives for startups. They have better incentives for investing in capital equipment. A lot of them have lower just overall corporate tax rates. At least they did until we lowered our corporate tax rate. There are a bunch of countries out there that have said, wait a minute, we need to be focusing on these tech hubs. I I would put Canada in, in that category. Under the Trudeau government, they created a program called Super Clusters. And it was an interesting idea to pick through a competition, you know, about five or so places around the country where the government would put in big amounts of money 
partnering with the private sector in key technology areas. One of them, obviously, for at least obvious for the Canadians, because they're pretty good at this, is, is AI. So other countries are thinking about that. The Chinese certainly are doing that. They're building a number of major technology cities. I mean, they're just building giant cities there where they're going to have massive numbers of technology companies and government labs and all that, because they see that as a way for them to get closer to the global lead in innovation. You know, we can learn a lot from other countries. Now, are we going to be the same? Exactly. No, of course not. Every country has to do their own unique approach that fits with our politics, our culture, and our business. But I think we can learn from other countries in terms of just frankly being bold. We've talked a lot about different policies. We've talked about different countries. We've talked about economic environments and, and political environments and public health environments situations that are going on right now. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the act itself and some of the benefits it's, it's going to provide. So who or, you know, what types of cities or, or companies and, you know, who can qualify for the benefits of the Innovation Centers Acceleration Act? And what's the eligibility look like? It's one of those things that it's sometimes a little bit hard to get it into legislative language, but the goal is essentially a Goldilocks approach. You don't want the winners and and the the folks who are doing just great and will continue to do great. They're almost on autopilot. Places like Silicon Valley, uh, all the way up to San Francisco or Boston Route 128, Seattle, they don't need this program. Uh, It would actually be sort of pouring fuel on the fire. They they already are doing so well. But at the same time, you you really don't want to be throwing good money after bad. And I, I don't want to pick on a particular place, but let's just say hypothetically, you know, Flint, Michigan. It's, you know, a struggling place. Maybe there are other programs for a place like Flint, Michigan, but it's, it's, it's not really near a big airport. It's not really near a great university. They don't really have a lot of technology jobs. It's much more of a traditional manufacturing place. So it's kind of, is there some sweet spot between those kinds of places? And that's really what the bill is trying to do. Basically, what it would do would be, it would, it would create a program run out of the Department of Commerce, and there'd be an independent national selection committee that would have federal agencies, research universities, private industry, and it would oversee a competition. And to qualify for the competition, you'd have to have several things. You'd have to show to this committee, the selection committee, you can do this. You're close. So do you have a good research university? Do you already have some technology firms? Do you have a nice quality of life? Would people, would knowledge workers coming out of college, would they want to move there? In addition, you have to show that you're willing to put some money into this. Is your state government willing to put money into this? Are you willing to upgrade your research universities? Are you willing to be flexible on regulations? Maybe things like creating an innovation sandbox for certain things. If you're a place that looks at technology as something to be afraid of, like <laughs> I'll pick San Francisco because they're such a good foil where they, you know, they make it hard to do sidewalk delivery robots. They, they want to make it harder to use AI. Now, obviously, San Francisco's got all the innovation they need, but a place like that where you're saying, hey, we don't really we want to regulate technology, I don't think they would qualify for this. So, you know, I'm, I'll pick some places just out of, you know, out of the blue. Madison, Wisconsin, this is a place like that. Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Birmingham, Alabama, maybe Oklahoma City, maybe Salt Lake City, maybe Boise. So lots of places that I don't mean by pick saying those that there aren't a lot of other places that could qualify. Charlotte, I'm I'm speaking there in in a couple of weeks. So the idea you take these kind of middle ground places, if you will, that have real potential and are willing to make a real commitment of of money, of institutional reform, and of 
working together with the business and the public sector in, in leadership. And then there'd be a competition. And this committee would pick, I don't know the number exactly, 10 or 12 of these places. And then for the next nine years, the federal government would say, okay, for nine years, we're going to give you help. One of the things about this is it's not just the money. There have been all these interesting studies of, of DARPA. When DARPA goes and provides some funding for a small firm mm-hmm. or a startup, the money matters. But what matters almost as much is the DARPA seal of approval. They can then go out and say, hey, DARPA thinks our technology is okay, so you should invest in it. Or if you're trying to get a customer, you should buy from us. This would be somewhat similar. So now you'd have all these technology companies, whether it's Google or Microsoft or IBM or Boeing, uh, Merck, and they're always thinking, where am I going to put that next 100 jobs or those next 400 jobs? Now they have a, a kind of a little bit of a security. They can say, okay, here are these 10 or 12 places. We know the federal government's going to work to help them. We know these places are committing to doing it, and we've now de-risked a little bit the ability of those companies to go in and invest there. So it's sending a signal, if you will, to the market that these are the kinds of places you should be investing in next. And I think that would be just almost more than just the amount of support the places are getting. That signal would be an important tool to get more investment there. Right. Both the the locations and, you know, the federal government are sort of guaranteeing to invest funds into those areas, right? Which, as you said, gives people a little bit of more security, both from the company's side, as well as the employee side, right? Those that are looking to transition to those locations and, and, and make those opportunities work. Exactly right. On the supply side and the demand side. So, you know, I was talking to my son, you know, obviously an, an N of one, uh, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I said to him, how come you, you're interested in the Valley as opposed to some other place? He said, look, I know, number one, if my company goes belly up or has problems or there's a downsizing or whatever, I'll have a network. I can go to other companies in the area. And then secondly, it's just so exciting. There's so much going on there. And that's the kind of thing that these places have to get over that hump, if you will. Once they get to that place, then, then that next college kid would say, wait a minute, I think, yeah, it could be cool to go to Indianapolis. And by the way, maybe I can get a 4,000 square foot apart, or, you know, whatever, the 2,000 square foot apartment for a whole lot less money. And the same thing, obviously, on the on the demand side with companies uh, who feel now it's okay for me to go there and add 300 jobs because I know there are going to be other companies there and other workers and all. So it, it, it feeds on itself. Couldn't agree with you more. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. One of the things that at least I found unique or maybe unusual, you know, is the location sort of specific approach here. These, these economic hubs, these, these tech hubs, is that unique for an R and D bill, right? Cause usually 
proposals focus on industries or keeping things in the U.S., but not necessarily a specific U.S. city, right? What are your thoughts on that? Is that, is that something that is unique or unusual? Yeah, it is, uh, frankly. And I want to make it you know, r- really clear that we need a whole lot of new tools, new measures, new policies if we're going to win the global innovation race. And, and, and one of them is a better R&D tax credit. One of them is more federal investment in broadband and other kinds of IT. Another one is more support for research, particularly oriented to important technologies that we're going to have to compete in, like AI or autonomous systems or biotech. But this is a component of a broader policy menu, if you will. And I think it's a critical component. So I wouldn't ever propose this is the thing we should do to the exclusion of other things. But it is an important component of that. And the the reason for it is that we can no longer afford to just be space blind, if you will, or place blind. That's a better way to put it. Because we've seen what's happened with that is the winners get stronger and and the losers or the people who aren't winning get weaker. And and that can't go on for a long, long time. If you a really good case in point is is the UK, where they actually have a the government has put in place a commission to do exactly what we're talking about now, or at least to consider what we're talking about now, to think about how do you get more innovation to other places in the UK. And they need it more than we do because, you know, there used to be places like Manchester and Leeds and Birmingham that were much, much stronger relative to London and Southeast England, where you have you know, Cambridge and Oxford and, and, and London, obviously. Most of the exciting tech things in the UK are happening in a very small part of England, and they recognize that's a problem. We don't want to get that far down the road. That would be a real disaster for the US. The UK waited way too long to respond. And this is a way for us to say, wait, we can have vibrant innovation in all parts of the U.S., all regions of the U.S. economy. Great point. So I don't want to stray too far from R&D, and we've touched on this a little bit. I'm, I'm interested to get you know your honest opinion on this. So we've talked about equality and equity, and you know we're we're focusing on sort of excluding established tech hubs. You know we've talked a little about decentralizing, but if this is a play to sort of decentralize the power of those certain areas between you know government and big tech, if you will. How do you feel like this is going to, to change? Is this going to enhance their opportunity in other locations? Is this really meant to grow startups within certain locations to compete with these types of firms and, and be more competitive domestically as well? What are your thoughts on sort of the whole big picture of all this? It's really all of the above. It is interesting. A number of large technology companies support the legislation and a number of technology trade associations support this legislation and, and this idea. And I think there's a couple of reasons. The simple reason is it just becomes better for them. They they would rather be investing in the U.S. Just a simple political reason. If they have to invest, you know, let's say Microsoft or Amazon or Intel or whatever, they have to invest someplace to grow and, and maybe they can do it more effectively in, in Bangalore or whatever. They'll do that. But they would much rather do it here because of political economy questions. It makes them look better. They get less criticism. So if they can invest here in the U.S., they would much rather do that. That's number one. Number two, this will help places like Seattle or Boston because it lets off a little bit of the steam in the boiler, if you will, so there's not overheating as much and the cost of living will be better for for those big technology firms. And when I say technology firms, I don't mean just internet. I mean, this would help biopharma, aerospace, advanced machining, all sorts of, you know, different advanced R&D-based industries. 
Well, the second reason, I think, for this, again, is a political economy factor. The U.S. invests now in, in the federal government. We invest less in research and development than we did before Sputnik as a share of GDP. It's, it's you know, phenomenal and, and terrible and shocking. What are we doing? That's why, as I said, we rank 22nd or 23rd in university funding now. And one of the reasons for that, not, not the only reason, but one of the reasons for that is that you get good support for these kinds of bills from members from Massachusetts or California or Washington State. I mean, for example, Elizabeth Warren, who's a very obviously progressive member, progressive senator, wants a wealth tax and some other things. That, oh, she must be anti-business. In reality, Senator Warren is very strongly supportive of a lot of these innovation policy measures because she's from a state that leads the nation in being the most innovative state of the nation. What we need are more members of Congress, House members and senators, who feel they have a stake in the innovation economy. That would lead to better policy, frankly. They'd have more of a commitment to seeing the R&D credit expanded because they could say, yeah, I've got a bunch of firms in my district, including startups, that, that, that rely on that. So, yeah, sure, it would help the big companies, but it would also help startups. One of the things that is critical about this bill is to, to win one of these designations, you have to be able to show that your research universities are tied in very, very closely with the entrepreneurial ecosystem in a place. You're tied in with accelerators or incubators or angel and seed fund programs. You're not just doing research and writing an article. So in that sense, it would really help with startup ecosystems in, in a lot more places in the country. It hits a lot of different areas, right? You've got workforce development. You've got affordable yep. housing. You've got infrastructure modernization. You've got R&D bonuses. You've got new manufacturing domestically and all these things. So these innovation centers definitely seem like they're going to, assuming we get the support we need to, to get it through, you know, we'll, we'll provide a, a big benefit. I was just interested to see your thoughts on, you know, what happens to these bigger hubs. And no, I think the bigger like hubs will, will actually, yeah, I think the bigger hubs will be actually stronger because of this. In a way, if I were worried about this bill, it would be if I'm a Shanghai official or if I'm a Canadian official. It's amazing the number of American companies that have gone to Canada because of lower costs. There are places in Mexico, frankly, people go, companies go. So part of what this is trying to do is rather than have that second office be offshore, have that second office, if you will, be domestic. And, and I think I think overall, it's, it's going to make the entire pie bigger. So sure, maybe Silicon Valley won't grow quite as much, but the overall pie, if you will, will be bigger. And that, I believe, will make those companies themselves stronger. Great point. Rob, it seems like the act itself has so many great pieces to it. What are some of the criticisms of, of the act itself? There's really two main criticisms, I believe. One is that there is another bill, which is called the Endless Frontier Act, which also has a similar provision, although the Innovation Centers Acceleration Act is broader this is the Schumer bill. And, and, and in all likelihood, what will happen, the way Congress works is you'll probably end up with a some a kind of omnibus hodgepodge of, exactly. in, in the good sense where, you know, they take ideas from members who say, look, I really want this in there. And so this act may or may not pass, but the idea could be incorporated into another broader bill. Uh, there's a big China bill that's coming out. So I think the odds of something happening are, are pretty good, actually. Now, what are the kind of main criticisms. I think there's two. So in the Endless Frontier Act, there's a lot of money for these university technology centers. 
And some people have said, well, wait a minute. Well, we've got these university technology centers. Why do we need this program? It just seems duplicative. And I understand the point, but I think they're missing the point, which is you've got two kinds of things we want to do in the country. One is we want to support broad technologies that are critical to our future. Things like autonomous systems and AI and maybe an advanced aerospace or you name it. And those can be done through funding MIT or funding Caltech or funding whoever, but they don't necessarily work to bring up these places in the heartland, if you will, to become self-sustaining technology centers. They're more national programs in, in nature. So when they think about, hey, let's add you know, $10 billion to AI, the reality is, who's going to win that? The reality is the places that are already doing well will win that. Boston, maybe UT Tech, UT Austin, Seattle, they've got a great AI program, but not necessarily these innovation hubs. So that's one of the things I think is it's just not understanding the difference between a program like the Innovation Center. It's trying to do two things at once. It's trying to spur innovation, but also change the location of innovation to create more of these hubs. The second is, is a little bit different, and that is, in fact, I got this question recently when I was asked to talk about this. Is, well, what, what about a community that they don't want that kind of growth and, you know, they, they, they like who they are? And the answer is, well, they don't apply then. If you don't want to grow and you're happy with where you are in terms of housing prices and congestion and number of jobs, then simply don't apply. Now, the answer to that would be, well, maybe the, the business elites will apply, but they'll overrule sort of the people, particularly maybe low-income residents. And, um, you know, that's certainly, <laughs> you, you can't dismiss that as, as, a, as, a, as an invalid concern. But one of the things that this bill does, though, is it makes it quite clear that in order to win to be designated as one of these centers, you have to take, number one, of housing affordability very seriously. So if you think you're going to get more jobs in there from startups or companies moving in or expanding, you've got to have a policy that's going to allow the market to respond with new houses, new housing units. It could be downtown apartments. It could be low-income housing. It could be whatever it might be so that you don't get this big housing burst. By the way, one of the reasons we have that, I have to say, there's a big problem with having tech hubs on the coast. If you look at, look at San Francisco, where are you going to build? You know, you, you can't kind of keep going out because- It limits, yeah. You got to yeah, go up. In the, you're in the bay, you know? Uh, in Seattle, you know, you're in, the, you're in the bay. Whereas, you know, if you're in Indianapolis or something, you got a lot of land, a lot of room. And so I think that makes it a little easier. And the second component of that is to win one of these competitions, you have to make a serious upfront plan about equity and engagement. How do you get low-income workers, particularly disadvantaged minorities, how do you build systems so that they can have a pathway into this? Now, there have been good studies that show even if you don't have a pathway into this, you, you know, low-income people in, in the service sector do a lot better even in inflation-adjusted terms, if they're in a tech hub than if they're not. So we need to remember that. But that's this bill goes way beyond that, and it says to win, you've got to, you've got to figure out pathways and programs, whether they're in high schools or apprenticeship programs or whatever it might be, uh, college programs, to make it easier for disadvantaged folks, including disadvantaged minorities, to become full participants in the regional tech economy. So in that way, that's a pretty new idea, really. And we haven't ever tried to do that systematically before. So this could be, I think, you know, groundbreaking and, and, and really pathbreaking. We could come up with new models that we could replicate elsewhere in the country. 
Couldn't agree with you more. And well said. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp we want to thank robert and raheem for being with us today and for a very insightful discussion thank you to both of you we also want to thank everyone at home for joining us don't forget to check out the entire suite of cross-border solutions tax podcasts on apple podcasts and spotify this podcast is worth two one-fifths of a cpe credit to get your credits, email the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. This podcast was hosted and mastered by Matthew DeMello, edited by Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next week. <laughs> <laughs>